Hello and welcome to the Eastman's Predator Pros Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Nimnick. Hey, it's great to be back on the mic with you guys. I know these podcasts have been coming to you all summer long, um, but uh, it's actually been, I don't know, five months since I've actually recorded a podcast. Um, you know, I got busy with my lawn care business, with coaching baseball, uh, so I went recorded a bunch of uh, of the previous podcasts you've been listening to clear back uh, at the end of the coyote season, which uh, kind of got me through all summer. But, uh, you know, here we are, changing of the seasons. I'm uh, anxious to get back into it. Still probably, you know, another six weeks before I'm going to start killing any coyotes, uh, just finishing up with the lawn care stuff, uh, waiting for the, the, uh, the temperatures to cool off a little bit. Uh, but excited to be back nonetheless. Um, you know, one of the questions I get a lot you know, through Instagram, social media, emails, uh, YouTube comments, whatever it may be, is, you know, what do we do with our coyotes? You know, how do you skin coyotes? Where do you find fur buyers? And that's what this episode is going to be all about. A uh, good buddy of mine, Joe Rydell, um, I've known him for a lot, of, a lot of years. You might have seen him on some of my Instagram stories and things like that. Um, but uh, just a great dude and, uh, you know, coyote hunting fanatic. But uh, he's actually... Uh, you know, has been putting up some of my coyotes for me the last couple of years. So I thought it'd be fun to bring him on, talk a little bit about coyote hunting, talk a little bit about putting up coyotes, skinning coyotes, finishing coyotes, uh, the fur market in general, um, and, and go from there. So hopefully you can get uh, some information there. Hopefully you won't be too disappointed when we talk about the, the, uh, the fur market futures and what this upcoming season's looking like, because it is looking a little bleak, but uh, we're going to get to all that uh, here shortly. But before we get going, I need to take a minute to thank the sponsor of this podcast, which is Cryptech Camouflage. You know, like I mentioned, I've been been out of the game here for, for the last five months. Um, but but over the summer, I got a big box from Cryptech. I'm excited this season to be wearing their stuff. Um, you know, I was a little overwhelmed, to be honest with you, when I started looking through their catalog online of, of all the, the pieces of clothing they offer. You know, the thing about coyote hunting is, you know, you know, you may have a 40, 50 degree swing throughout a day of coyote hunting. So layering up is extremely important. And, uh, you know, I found a bunch of different things that I'm excited to use, um, you know, real cold weather stuff, but also some thin, thin, you know, warmer weather stuff. Um, and then I'm just, uh, excited for this, that Cryptek Highlander pattern. Um, you know, a lot of stuff, you know, especially this Western hunting where I spend a majority of my time, you know, I'm looking for that lighter color pattern, you know, more browns than there are blacks, more tans than there are browns. Um, just that lighter pattern that, that really helps break up your outline, especially when you're stuck sitting on a, a grass hillside, um, you know, with not a lot of cover. So um, between between all the options they have for layering and and things like that, uh, plus they obviously have some, some white snow camo covers. I'm excited to put those to use as well. So, um, if you follow me on Instagram, I'm going to be going and posting some stories and some posts about this here. When I start breaking that stuff out, if you're kind of curious to see, you know, um, what pieces of Cryptek, you know, I, I picked, um, and what I'm going to be wearing this winter. But, uh, if you're interested in looking, you know, at their patterns at what they have to offer, uh, you can go to their website, which is cryptek.com and check out all they have to offer. Well, Joe, buddy, it's great to finally get you on a podcast, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me. You know, anybody that's followed me for a while, you know, Joe's been a great friend of mine for a long time. It's kind of a unique situation how we met up. Uh, you know, you may have heard me talk before about uh, I ended up in Georgia, uh, I don't know, a handful of years back. Maybe it's probably, I don't know, Joe, what was that, 12 years ago? <laughs> it's been yeah. a long time. You know, that's Banger. actually where I first met Joe. Um, Joe was actually from originally up South Dakota, but that's where I first met Joe was down in Georgia. And then um, Joe took a job that we'll get into, you know, here shortly up here in Nebraska about 45 minutes or an hour from, from where I live. And, 
and I've uh, been fortunate enough to hunt with Joe quite a bit over the last six, eight years. Joe's got a, a young son named Parker. If you follow my Instagram page, you know, Parker was able to kill his first coyote. Is that last season? It was two years ago, two, two seasons now. It's been a long time, you know, but, uh, but no, it's always, always a pleasure. And, and, you know, over the last couple of seasons, Joe and I, um, I've had a little partnership because probably everybody knows the fact that I don't skin coyotes <laughs> and it's kind of a, I don't know, Joe, would you consider it a side hobby maybe, or, um, skinning coyotes, putting up coyotes? Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, it always makes a little extra money for the year, but it's just something that I always grew up doing, um, utilizing the fur a little bit more and, you know, I, there's not a lot of guys that do it and it's one of those things I just kind of got good at and I just keep doing it every year. Yeah. So, you know, as a friend of mine, we got to talking and I'm like, well, Joe, I'm sure not skinning these things. And so, yeah, over the last couple of years, you know, Joe and I, you know, he helped put up a bunch of my coyotes for me as well as some of his own and other people's, you know, so I thought it'd be great to, to get Joe on this podcast and, and talk a little bit about putting up coyotes, skinning coyotes, the fur market in general. It seems like as coyote hunters, everybody's always, you know, concerned or, you know, looking forward to what the fur prices are going to be the following year. And that's always a big topic of conversation. Um, you know, and it's a question I get a lot, you know, what do we do with the coyotes that we shoot? So that'd be great to bring on Joe that obviously has a heck of a lot more experience putting up coyotes than I do. Um, but before we get going, Joe, let's talk a little bit about your background. You know, you're, you have a unique background. Um, you're a fish biologist, correct? Yeah. So I work for the Nebraska Game Parts Commission. Um, I'm a district fish management biologist. So I manage all the lakes and resources up in the Northwest part of Nebraska. Um, I'm pretty much, I'm the guy that tells you what species uh, you can keep, how many you can keep, what size they got to be, and then maintain our, our lakes with healthy populations of fish. Um, so I do a lot outdoors and kind of get in on the, the management aspect of a lot of wildlife and fish. Heck yeah. I've always been jealous. I know my oldest son Creighton, he's like, uh, thinks you have the dream job, you know, out fishing and doing fish surveys. And I know whenever we get together coyote hunting, he's along, you guys always talk fishing. I'm a kind of, you know, staring off the windshield, you know, but, uh, but you guys seem to get into those fishing conversations. Yeah. Oh, he's, <laughs> we got to prod him one way or another here. And I think, uh, <laughs> we got a good grasp on the fishing side. Heck yeah. You don't something so, to do something to do besides mowing lawns. Yeah. Well, it's, it's better than that. I can guarantee it, you know, <laughs> One thing about your job, you know, how is it, you know, there's always jobs and, and I always am curious about certain jobs out there that lend themselves to the coyote hunting world, whether it's, you know, a good friend of ours, Brett Rye, you know, he's a, a rural route UPS driver and, you know, he, he's out there delivering packages to these farmers and ranchers all day long. And it's been how he's lined up probably some of the most, you know, probably what 90 plus percent of the ground that he has permission to coyote hunt on you know, is because of his job, you know, you know, sure. your job kind of plays in tune with that as well. You're out a lot. You're getting to, you know, see maybe where coyotes are moving and where coyotes are at and running into different landowners and things throughout the, the year doing what you do. So does that kind of help out with the coyote season when it finally gets here? Well, a little bit. I mean, you get to see kind of witness that behavior throughout the year where we spend a lot of time out in the field, especially in the fall, um, early spring and fall. So you kind of see what the population is going to be like, you know, that, uh, especially right now, we're starting to see a lot of little pups out and about. Um, you get ideas on where, where you're seeing concentrations of them. So maybe you start working on some of the landowners in those general areas, uh, trying to get permission in some spots that you wouldn't have before just because you're seeing more and more out and about. Um, you know, one aspect of working with the game commission, um, you know, we get phone calls once in a while with problem coyotes. 
you know, somebody rancher calls in and thinks they have issues and there's not that many people within this part of game and parks. I know that, that hunt coyotes. Um, so sometimes those questions get referred to me and nice, you, know, you can yeah. build relations up that way. And that's gained me one or two properties over the years. Yeah. You're like the office resident coyote killer, right? Yeah. The, something uh... like that. <laughs> uh, heck yeah. Now with your background in schooling, you know, did, did you ever have to do a, anything with on the wildlife side throughout your, you know, your master's degree to where you, you know, you maybe got to learn a little bit about the biology of coyotes and things like that in schooling, or was it pretty much all, all fishery stuff? Well, most of my stuff is fisheries. My, my bachelor's degree that I did was a wildlife and fisheries degree. So you got a little bit of behavior stuff, a little bit of, you know, species identification. You learn about, you know, maybe the life cycle of different animals. Um, but I have to say the majority of my knowledge that I've gained over the years, coyote on has probably been firsthand in the field, um, just observing, you know, maybe my education really built it up on my curiosity and how much I pay attention to things. Um, and that might be the trapper side of me too, that I can really understand the animal's behavior and that maybe helps predict how that animal is going to travel across the landscape coming into the call or, you know, helping with setup and really picking out that spot in a spot to set up your stand. Oh, you bet. Now you grew up in uh, Eastern South Dakota. Is that right? Yep. Yep. Is that, is that kind of where you started growing up where you started to do, you know, a little bit of coyote hunting, coyote trapping, you know, hunting in general? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, my dad was always a trapper. He was, didn't do a lot of calling back in the day, you know, that area uh, it's mile by mile sections. Um, so most of our coyote hunting was either cut a fresh set of track in the snow and drop one walker off. And the other guy drives around with binoculars looking for looking for the coyote, you know, calling wasn't really a popular thing in that area because those coyotes were really pressured. Um, but I got more into the calling when I went to grad school in Indiana. Um, of all things, I end up seeing a, watching a video, a verminator video and seeing Rick Pallet on there <laughs> calling in all these critters back in Kansas. And I'm like, man, that seems kind of interesting. So like anybody else back in the day, I got online, ordered a call, a hand call and went out, uh, you know, Indiana's kind of set up perfect for a coyote hunter. It's got little hardwoods and creek bottoms and small fields. And you, know, you get in the edges of those, those rural field edges right outside of town and start squawking a little bit. And coyotes were running in like crazy. So um, that's where you call. I didn't know that. I didn't know you called in your first coyote in Indiana. Oh, yeah. I called in probably 20 the first year I ever tried it. Never <laughs> killed a one. It wasn't until the second year I finally called one in and shot it at 20 yards of the shotgun. So run me through yeah. that. I, I always have to ask all my guests. I got to, cause nobody ever forgets their first called in coyote that they kill. <laughs> so, so I, I got to hear the story. Let's hear it. Yeah. So we, this one, we're actually, uh, it was South central Indiana. Um, it was right outside of a small town. My buddy's family owned the ground right around to the edge of town. We parked in the Kmart parking lot, walked out behind Kmart where their field was, walked down this drainage ditch. Um, we went probably two, 300 yards down this ditch to get away from the commotion and the noise. And we set up right on the creek bottom. Um, there was an open field off to our upwind side and downwind at the time would have crossed right across the creek. So I felt like we were pretty safe. One wasn't going to get around us. Um, I bet I didn't squawk three times on that, uh, that Tweety call of Rick's. Oh, yeah, and Tweety, yeah. I happened to, my buddy kind of did a couple of lip squeaks and I looked over my left shoulder and there's a coyote right across the creek at 20 yards sitting on his butt looking at us. I have no <laughs> idea where he came from. 
but he was on my side, so I, I whacked him. No. That was the first one. He must have been one. sleeping right up the crib. What time of day was that? Oh, it was two o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, he must, he must have just been laid up sleeping down in there somewhere, huh? Yeah. Just probably I think, close, I huh? think he I think he came in. I mean, it was a little bit taller weeds, kind of more of a fallow field across that side, and I think he came out of that and just happened to sneak in on us, and we didn't even know he came in. Just came in and sat down and couldn't get to our wind. <laughs> he was debating whether he wanted to cross the creek or not. Right. <laughs> That's yeah. wild. That's crazy. I didn't know. That's you're like the first guy I've ever talked to that's killed a coyote in Indiana. But yeah. you know, that's oh. one of those states. You know, I talk to a lot of guys, and I think there's some there's some honey holes out there. I think everybody always looks at us out west, you know, and thinks, oh, you guys are so lucky. But man, I always tell people, I think there there are some great opportunities, and kind of that, you know, I don't know. I call that kind of Midwest Midwest, wouldn't you? I don't right. even know. You know, what? just with a mix of ag and timber, and you know, all the food sources and just the the people, you know, just allows for the, the coyote numbers to boom in some of those areas. Um, and then there obviously the, the coyote hunters in those areas usually are fairly limited. I know it's probably picking up in popularity now in a lot of those areas, but man, it could be, it could be as good as hunting as anywhere. Yeah. I'll tell you what has been on my bucket list to make a trip back. Cause that was the year I finally killed one. I was only there for about another two months before I finally finished up my grad school and end up moving South to Georgia. So I mean, I've always wanted to go back to that area and see if I can use what I've learned now and see how well it was. Cause I was an idiot back then. I didn't, yeah, I yeah. didn't have somebody to show me <laughs> what to do. And I was going by well, one video I bought of Rick and him squawking and yeah, you know, he, we all know story, that probably was storyteller than, you know, yeah, he's more of a storyteller <laughs> than he is a educator in those videos. And, and, uh, uh, I mean, it, it was, it was great, but I'd love to go back there and, to see what kind of kind of numbers a guy could get because everywhere you went you're calling in coyotes you just i wasn't set up right the way i, I know i should have been now yeah i'd be curious nowadays with thermal and you know I'm, I'm assuming that you can hunt coyotes in indiana with thermal now um you know i wonder you know that part of the the world seems to be you know pretty populated with thermal hunters nowadays you know and i wonder right. the landscape just kind of really lays out for it nice with the fields and mixed with the timber and you know, creek bottoms and things like that. So I wonder if, uh, yeah, I wonder if, uh, thermal, you know, is big there. I'm guessing it probably is. I'm guessing it is. It's kind of blown up everywhere and places that are a little more difficult to call them in during the day. I think thermals really kicked off. Yeah. Yeah. So how'd you get your start in skinning coyotes? Did you, uh, start, start, you know, watch your dad early on when, when he was doing yeah. some trapping, is that kind of how you kind of learned, yep. learned the skinning game? You know, it, it's one of those things that we didn't really have a lot of freezer space and unless it was really, really cold out growing up it, where you can hang them outside on the fence line. You know, my dad was a trapper. So he started early in the year when the weather was still warm. Only way you can really keep the value of fur is to put it up so it doesn't spoil. So when I was a kid, I remember sitting in the, he did in the basement where it was a little bit warmer. We didn't have a finished basement in our house and we'd sit at the bottom of the stairs and dad'd be skinning, skinning coyotes and fox and he was, raccoons he was kind of more of a all-around trapper rather than just a specialized one and and uh we'd sit down there and eat our snacks drink our hot chocolate and watch dad put up fur <laughs> and you know that was kind of the, the start of it and there's even things i've learned now from putting up fur that my dad didn't do back in the day like he wasn't real careful on fleshing and didn't remove cartilage from the ears and you know he patched holes but he he did it you know, fairly rough job patching holes just to hide it. 
And a lot of the technique that I've learned over the years, either been trial and error, or, you know, uh, meeting other trappers over through the years that maybe can show me a thing or two, a little bit different than what I was doing before that brings out more value in your fur. So like, like I mentioned earlier, I've never attempted even skin a coyote, but so I want you to walk me through, you know, and everybody listening that was maybe interested, obviously probably YouTube's probably a better way. If you really wanted to learn how to skin a coyote, I'm assuming, you know, you can actually watch somebody do it. But if somebody's driving down the road and just wanted to listen, you know, to you explain how to skin a coyote, walk me through the process, you know, from you have a, a coyote, you know, full carcass coyote there, walk me through the entire process to, to have a finished coyote ready to sell. Sure. I mean, so the first thing you're going to do is, um, yeah, there's lots of ways to skin an animal. Um, more common one we use for doing the majority of our, our predators is called case skinning. So you're going to tube them out. You're not going to split them open down the belly. You're going to start pretty much start at the back end and peel the hide all the way off. So it looks like a tube. looks like um, a hand puppet when you're done, right? Yep. Pretty <laughs> much. <laughs> so a lot of people will, um, just go ahead and dive right into it. The first thing I step I do is I start at the, the front arms on a kind of the forearm area on a coyote. And I'll, I'll trim around the ankles and I'll peel that hide back to about the joint on the shoulder and uh, kind of the elbow area. Now, is um, it, do you do this when the coyote's just laying there on the garage floor yeah, or is it hung up at this point? Nope, I'll just do that right laying on the garage floor, kind of prep it. And I can, if I have several coyotes to do, I can go each one and I can prep that out right away. Um, I know a lot of guys will use a, like a, a bolt cutter or a she, like shear snips and just cut the front legs right off right away. And that just makes it easier when you get down to that shoulder later on, um, trying to peel that down. I've heard um, of guys, you know, guys that maybe are shooting carcass coyotes and, and throwing them in a big deep freeze and, and waiting for a fur buyer to make their every two week run. You know, I've sure. heard, the, I've heard the fur buyers telling guys to do that. Is that probably yeah. why, you know, cut the, cut the front legs off at the elbows. Is well, that, does does two things and one, it makes it freezer it makes it yep it makes it easier for them to, to skin it when they thaw them back out staves that one step and then it also makes it you can stack a lot more especially the way they lay they can stack more in their trailer for hauling them out that you know these legs and stick and stuff every which direction yeah yeah <laughs> but once i get those front arms kind of peeled back and ready to go then i'm going to hang them by their back legs and i'm going to start basically at the back of their their heel or the pad of their foot and I'm going to skin it all the way down. There's kind of a line of, um, dark back fur and light belly fur. I'm going to follow that with my knife all the way down to the anus and, and, uh, do it on both sides. Um, and I'm going to trim, pull down, trim from the back feet all the way down past the hips, um, kind of until it's, it's peeled down to the, the tail. Um, then I'll work on the belly area. So I'll, I'll trim on the inside of the genitals, uh, leave, you know, you leave the, the nuts and on the mail and leave that with a carcass. You don't need that anyways. Um, kind of trim around it and peel the belly down, uh, work your fingers under the tail. And at that point, you're going to want to strip the, the bone out of the tail. Um, so I'll actually take my knife and skin halfway down the tail real gentle. And you kind of, after doing it a while, you'll feel that there's about a, a certain point where, um, you kind of lose the the gristle part of the tail. It's not really pulled, not really taking too hard to to peel the, the skin back. And you can either get like a tail stripping tool. Um, a lot of people live different companies. Trapping supplies will make it. Um, I usually just use my knuckle, just wrap it around the tail, 
grip it and then grab that tailbone and you can strip it right out. I mean, um, you just take your so, finger and kind of work it out towards the end of the tail and it just. Yeah, sp- it just pulls, pulls the whole bone all the way out and leaves it a little bit. Um, How far does that bone run up that tail? Like all the way to the tip. All, no all the way. Kid, to the all tip. The way. Dang, yep. I didn't know that. Yeah, huh. you look at one that's already skinned out and. It looks kind of creepy with that cartilage all the way down to the tip of the tail. But you're only skinning the tail, what, like maybe a half? A third left? of the way. A third of the third way, of the and way, the rest maybe. of it just kind of pulls out. Yep. And then I'll take a, it kind of looks like a gut hook on a knife, but there's a plastic little tail stripping tool that you can put in there, and it's just one quick pull through that tail to strip that open the whole way. And the whole reason for that is so it dries. Yeah, I was going to um, ask, what if somebody went to skin a coyote and they just cut the tail off right there and just kept going? eventually when they put it up that would start rotting out inside of there and yeah it'd spoil you'd lose all that hair on the end all of the, the tail. hair would fall off the tail yeah and depends on what the market value is that year you know sometimes they want that that tail's part of what the what's desired for that fur buyer um some fur buyers only want a particular strip of that hair and that tail doesn't mean a thing you could cut that tail all the way off and sell that fur for the same price so it kind of depends on what the market is that year and you know how careful you need to be on some of the stuff I know I've skinned a few of your coyotes that have been shot right running away and there's not much tail left. And I mean, they, they put up and sell just the same with the way the market is. So, well, I usually go for that Texas heart shot, but every now and then yeah. I miss by just a little bit, you know, and it yeah. Get well, the tail. <laughs> windage. Yeah. Windage. You know, yeah. Always, yeah. always windage. <laughs> yeah. Once you get the tail done, then it's pretty much a pull and you're going to pull it all the way down to get the front shoulders. Um, at the front shoulders, you know, it's just a matter of, of pulling the hide all the way down. If, a lot of people have a, they do a lot of this. They'll have a skinning machine. So Is that like that get, winch, the winch setup yep, you have the in winch your setup. So you, even if they have, if somebody has a, a skinning machine, they're still going to do the first steps and get it past the, the tail, get it down to the hips. And then you can wrap it around. Um, they'll usually do a golf ball or they'll have a set of vice clips anchored to you know, either a bucket or directly to the floor, um, some way to anchor the hide down. And then you pull the carcass all the way up with a winch system up to the ceiling. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And the higher you can go with that winch system, you know, the less you have to finish off yourself. Um, but it just takes a lot of the workout. So Um, then as you get that pulling up, then you're just kind of slowly taking your knife and just kind of any little piece that catches a little bit, you're just kind of you know, yep. working it. So it just keeps peeling off. Like you peeling off an old, old sock or something, right. Off your yep. foot. Yeah, pretty much. You know, the biggest part, parts with that is just make sure you trim around where the bullet holes are. Cause if it starts ripping a little bit, you can rip a really big hole. Then you got more work to do down the road when it comes to the patch part. So, you know, if so we're then you the go field, all the way out to the head. Then once you get to the head that, then you slow down, obviously a little, a little more tedious when you get to the head, like you said, the ears and. Well, a little bit, but not too much. I mean, there's, there's a step in there with the front shoulders. You know, once you get to the front shoulders, you got that skin machine pressure on. Um, you know, I use an old bridge spike, the wedge in between the, you know, the neck area and the bottom part of the arm as you're pulling up, poke it through, and then you can pull, strip that all the way, that hide all the way down off the end of those legs to where you prepped it to begin with. Um, I said, if you cut those front legs off to begin with, and you pull it all the way off the end of the coyote, um, just one more step in there before you pull it all the way down to the head. But when you get to the head, you're going to peel it down. And when you, you're going to peel it and you'll start seeing that hide roll around and start seeing the back of that cartilage. Um, you know, there's a couple of different ways you can deal with that. 
personally, I just cut the ears off right there and I deal with the cartilage later on. I know a lot of guys will use a, a screwdriver to wedge in there on the inside of the ears and leave the cartilage on the carcass, um, pull it out. I've lost more ears on coyotes doing it that way myself. I haven't had my, that much luck. So I do have a better luck just cutting them off with a knife and then peeling down to the eyes. And it's really important around the eyes that you cut in towards the head and try to trim around the um, kind of the eyelid parts. Leave that on the, the head itself, on the, or on the skin itself. Um, if you try cutting straight down, you'll have these great big giant eyes on the head of your coyote. <laughs> so, you know, especially if you want to tan it, it doesn't look very good. Yeah, yeah. Giant holes in the top of the head. Um, but once you get past the eyes, it's just another matter of fact of peeling all the way down to the cartilage of the nose and then trim as much cartilage off as you can. So you're pretty much done. She's skinned. So then the at that point, jaws. you have basically an inside-out coyote yep. skin. Yep. And then and I know, you know, a lot of times it, it sounded like when you were, were skinning coyotes for myself, you would you would do that process and you would stop right there pretty much, and then you'd maybe wait till you had more time to do the, the finishing process? Sure. Yeah, so at that point, I mean, I can roll, turn them back, hair out, roll them up, bag them up, throw them in the freezer. And, you know, you can pile up a whole bunch of coyotes at one time. Um, you know, if you got 10 coyotes to skin for a night, you're pretty wore out by the time you're done skinning 10 coyotes. Um, maybe you don't want to go on to the next step. So you can freeze a bunch of them and then pull them out one or two night, you know, maybe three or four, it depends on how ambitious you are, how many stretchers you have, um, and finish them out. Um, but the next step is once you're ready to finish one, you, know, you got to thaw back out. And then the first step is to flesh it. You got to get rid of all that, that meat and gristle and it takes a few extra tools. Um, I got a flesh and beam. A sharp fleshing knife. Um, I always have a, a little box cutter with me that I use for, you know, fine trimming. It's just a razor blade type knife. Um, but fleshing is just essentially you start at the nose right behind the ears and you take your fleshing knife and you're peeling all that fat and gristle and, um, all the way off the hide, all the way down the back. So um, the coyotes turned inside out again. Turned inside and it out goes again. over this. It's isn't it? Is like a piece of wood, and it's kind of shaped more like the yep. And they a made, coyote, and you kind of lay it on there where you have something to push against the boards, kind of behind the skin. Yep, and they make different kinds of flesh and beams. They make ones nowadays that are fiberglass that are kind of nice because they don't splinter on you. Um, new mine's an old ash board, um, hardwood board uh, that I bought on a trapping supply twenty years ago. Now, shoot, can't believe it's been that long, but yeah, about <laughs> twenty years ago. And, uh, um, you know, it, it works great. It works every year for me. I got it built on a little stand. So the angle's right. Um, it's comfortable for me to do it. And you just, you put it on there and you're just pushing the fat off with a flesh knife. Now, a flesh knife is pretty much a, a two handled knife, knife blade. Um, you're going to try to get your angle right. So you're not cutting into the hide, but you're putting pressure that would just roll that, that all the way down. Um, I prefer a really sharp knife and a lot of guys like more of a dull knife. Um, but I've just gotten a, the one I do, I use is called a caribou knife and, uh, it just has a better feel for me than other ones. Um, nice. but once you get it fleshed, I mean, there's no pretty way to describe how to flesh a coyote, <laughs> just peeling the fat off the coyote yeah, all the yeah. way down. Um, once I get it fleshed, the next thing I'm going to do is I'm gonna look at the, the bullet hole areas and there's always a little bit of gristle or even bullet burn, you know, little, little spots where the hair is missing right around the hole. Um, 
that I'll take that box cutter um, and I'll trim around that just real thin area, give myself a nice clean look to that fur. <clears throat> and uh, try to make that hole more of a, an oval shape. And that way when you pinch it together, it doesn't bind up. It doesn't have, um, doesn't have little irregularities to it where it folds back on itself. Um, just makes for a cleaner finish look. Um, and then the next step is just to get yourself a, a, a heavier, almost like a leather type needle. Um, I use a surgical needle. It's a tri-tip uh, taxidermist type needle and a heavy duty thread. Um, I've used anything over the years from um, dental, fl dental floss to uh, you know, waxed nylon thread, uh, fish line. Um, it all seems to work, but that wax nylon taxidermy thread is probably the best that I've come up with. So now when you get to the point, I'm going to go back a little bit to the, the fleshing side. How important is that? I mean, is that one of those steps too? If, if you don't get it completely fleshed right, then you're going to have these issues with, you know, part of the, the, the hide rotting. What, what's yep. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you don't get that flesh off there, all that hard work you've done to this point is going to spoil um, you hang it up in the garage or wherever you're going to hang it until you're ready to sell it, or even a fur buyer is going to get it. And that carcass is going to have a smell to it, which is going to throw it off. You know, if they run it through the tanning process, the hair will slip out, you'll get bald spots on it. Um, the last thing you want from a fur buyer is, you know, a reputation that you're not doing, not putting up good fur. Um, so it's really important that you get, get that thing clean. Um, you don't want to go too far because if you get too much of that membrane off, that outside tissue off, um, you might start seeing hair slip through. You know, if you start seeing pin hairs coming through the hide, you're putting too much pressure on it. Hmm. So it's it's an art. Like I said, it's one of those things that took me a long time to get good at. Um, you know, it doesn't take me very long to do a coyote anymore. Uh, I can typically get the whole process done from skinning to fleshing to sewing um, all the way down to getting ready to put it on the stretcher board and, you know, typically under an hour. So let's break that down. The, the skinning part, you said sometimes you'll maybe skin 10 and roll them up, throw them in the freezer. I mean, per coyote, what, now that you've done, you know, hundreds of these coyotes, what are you down? Well, like typically one coyote, what's that taking you for just the skinning part? Oh, just skinning parts, usually seven to 10 minutes. And then the next time when you break it out, the fleshing, about that yeah, again flesh, or is the fleshing fleshing's, probably the most time consuming or is it so no, fleshing is usually about another 10 minutes it doesn't take long to flesh the cow once you get it out you know the heart the longest part is probably going through and trimming your holes and sewing and patching them up you know if you get lucky that's enough, if brett rice shooting them with his 2250 in the back that's right when 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 yeah. you give those dandelion coyotes that when you pull the trigger and you see the hair flying and it kind of hangs in the air for a while yeah yeah right you know it's gonna be a long night in the fur shed that's right <laughs> But you, you get those ones that are out there, you know, maybe 250 yards, shoot your chest on, you know, there might be a bloody mess when you skin it and pour out, but there's not a hole in that coyote. You don't have to patch anything. Yeah. Anything at 22 size or smaller is, is fine. It'll, you'll never even notice it when it's all finished. So trap they're selling these awesome. coyotes, you know, they're selling these coyotes, you know, fur out too. So, yep. you know, the, the patch job needs to be good, but it doesn't have to be perfect. Right. I mean, right. Yep. And the stitch that I'm using, I mean, it's, is basically the best way to describe it is a baseball stitch. I mean, you're going, you're working from the underside of the, ha the hair side to the fur side and 
switching back to the other side and go hair out and just pull it tight, you know, cinch it up every couple times back and forth until you got her good and tight. And, um, pretty much just doing a, a overhand cinch knot to finish it up and it holds pretty good in the tanning process. Now the last part though, you have to, what do you stretch them so, or dry so, them? So after I'm done patching them, the next thing to do is to wash the hide. Oh, um, I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. You, know, you got to get all that blood and gristle off that, that degrades the grading process. It might not ruin the fur altogether, but you know, if you have stuff like, uh, you know, belly acid and stuff like that, that sits on that fur, um, that's stuff that can eat away that fur over time. Or even once in a while you get some that are, you know, you shoot them and they've had a high protein diet and there's crap all over the back of the tail and down the legs and that'll eat that hair away over time. So getting that thing cleaned right away is pretty important. Um, now you use, you, wash. Of, you use a bucket of water or old laundry machine? Yeah, well, the best way to do it is if you had an old laundry machine, throw it in a gentle cycle and run three or four at a time. And, you know, the spin cycle, get the water out. I'm not, don't quite have that luxury. And I don't have quite that understanding of a wife to run at my laundry. So <laughs> I do it in the old fashioned style. I just use a bucket of water and, uh, you know, run it through the sink in the buck or not the sink. I guess I got a water spigot that I wash it out with just run uh, laundry soap, a little couple of laundry soap in there <clears throat> and uh, just wash it by hand. You know, you start seeing dunk it in the water and all the blood and stuff comes off and dump that, that bloody water out, run some fresh stuff through it to rinse it. Um, try to wring out as much water as I can. And, you know, try to, last thing I do is I kind of snap it like a wet towel, gets a little bit of that last little bit of water off the carcass and she's ready for the stretcher. And then now these stretchers, you have you made your stretchers or do you buy those from like a trapping supply store? I haven't made any mine. I know some people that are pretty good woodworking wise, you know, try to get a good thin board and run it through a, a planer and stuff to, to do it. But I just buy all mine through trap and supply company. Um, you know, I originally bought a bunch of wire ones years ago thinking that was the way to do it. And, um, I kind of like the finished look of the legs all pinned out. So I take my wire stretchers and modify them and put wood inserts in the bottom. And, um, they're pretty handy, but overall a full, either a full wood board stretcher or an adjustable wood board stretcher, I think still give the best final appearance to it. Huh. What's one of those stretchers run? If you were, if you were yeah. to start buying a bunch of them new. It's hard to say. It kind of depends on what, who makes them. Um, I'd guess you probably buy, you know, 10 to $20 a piece for a stretcher. It's not bad. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's an investment into it. If you wanted to get started on putting up your fur, there's, there's quite a bit of materials and between the flesh and beam and the flesh and knife and, you know, stretcher and, you know, get a fur apron, put an apron on to keep your clothes from being all nasty with the gristle and <laughs> I get a sewing needle. And I mean, there's a lot invested with it, but yeah, yeah. You know, the value you get out of your fur, especially during a good year, it can bring a $20 coyote to a $60 coyote. You got one that's got a little bit of big hole in the side of it that the fur buyer says he's not going to buy, not going to take. You know, you might still be able to pull 60 bucks out of that in a good year. So, I mean, you, you can make some money out of knowing how to patch up and, you know, fix fix the fur and fix errors in it. And um, 
So it sounds to me like the stretching is actually pretty dang important. Like if you don't do that right, then your finished coyote does not look, even though it may be done right, you may have done all the sewing and fleshing right. If you don't stretch it properly and have a finished coyote for the fur buyer to look at, that could ruin the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, the, the full final appearance, you, know, you want to make sure that thing's dry and put it in front of a fan so it's it doesn't look matted down, makes it easier from the grade. You know, they're going to look at a particular part of it. You know, the recently the the market's really been looking at that that three four inch strip right down the middle of the back, all the way up the hackles. That's kind of been the the money strip, as people have been calling it. You get a good long haired coyote that's got good hackles on his back and pale colored. You know that that's what everybody's been wanting the last couple of years for the trim industry. Huh. That's interesting. Very interesting. There's been years ago where in the past where, you know, that wasn't really that important. They were actually making full coats and stuff out of it. And maybe a really clear pale belly was more important than that, that pinstripe on the back, you know, making sure the sides were fully were more full and heavier and didn't show flat edges. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of aspects to it that kind of determine what the grade of a coyote is. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt the podcast, but I need to take a second to tell you a little bit about Lucky Duck Predator Calls. Now, if you follow the podcast for any amount of time, you know that's my go-to electronic call. If you're in the market for a new e-call and want to see what Lucky Duck has to offer, you can go to their website, which is luckyduck.com, and you can see their entire lineup of e-calls from the low-end Rebel to the high-end Supervolt. They offer a Predator call that can fit any budget in any circumstance. So, Check out what they have to offer. You can see some of their innovative features like being able to spin the call in 360 degrees, built-in decoys, and, of course, their innovative sound library produced by none other than Rick Paulette. So if you're in the market for a new e-call, visit LuckyDuck.com to see what they have to offer. Now back to the podcast. So it sounds like throughout this whole process that what, what would you consider the worst part of skinning a coyote? The fleshing? Actually, I say the sewing is the worst part. <laughs> the sewing. <laughs> I mean, it's just the more tedious, time-consuming part. The rest of it's not too bad. It goes fairly fast. You know, but just being everyone's different. So having to read how that hole is on the, on the, the hide, um, it's kind of a puzzle trying to figure out how to put it back together. Yeah, yeah. I suppose you see some crazy different concoctions of holes. I mean, to me, it seems yeah. like you look at a coyote, you know, a dead coyote on the carcass that you just shot. And you're like, oh, that hole ain't bad. But I suppose once you start getting the skin stretched out on a piece of wood and you're like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a little yeah. bit bigger than I thought. Yeah. Well, it comes into choosing your ammo and shot placement a little bit, I guess. You know, so what you're saying is everybody should have to skin their own coyotes before they just start shooting them with the uh, cannons, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know. I think 22 Creedmoor, in my opinion, is one of the worst for bullets out there. But... Oh yeah. Yeah. Can hit him at I a watch long range, but man, that's that what Rick that? shoots is that or is this a 22 nozzle? I think this is a 22 Creedmoor. And yeah, it's like, yeah. Yeah, like you said, when you see the hair go flying, you like, you know, that that was not pretty. Right. <laughs> yeah. And there's some of them you can just look at and it's like, I'm not even going to mess with that. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, so, one, one last step I wanted to, I guess I didn't mention. Yeah. Coyotes are sold for out, but when you first put one on a stretcher, um, you're going to put it skin out for the first, probably the first eight hours or so, just enough so that that dries on the inside, gets almost a not real paper dry yet, but you know, where you run your hand down it, your hand's not going to get wet. Uh, it's not going to feel sticky. So you got to dry that skin out first, and then you flip it. Um, 
typically I do that. I'll, I'll put them on the stretchers, um, in the evening after I've done washing them for the night, I'll put them on the stretchers, maybe 10 o'clock at night. And then first thing in the morning, about six o'clock in the morning, I'll go back in there and I'll flip them right away and uh, turn them hair out and put them in front of a fan to finish the drying process. Yeah, that's cool. Well, I feel, I really feel like I could probably go start skinning my own coyotes now if I really wanted to. Oh, I believe when I see it. (laughs) You know, it's been crazy. Everybody always asks me that, you know, and I've just always been fortunate enough, you know, when I started killing coyotes, you know, in high school, you know, Dale Schneider down here, um, you know, longtime fur buyer, he's always been right here in the town I live. So I've never had to skin. He's always bought them on the carcass. And I've always thought to myself, wow, this is, this is really cool. I can just drop, yeah. go kill him and drop my tailgate and throw him on his garage floor. And he writes me out a check and off I go, man, I don't even have to mess with it, you know? So that, that's one of the advantages, advantages to skinning your coyote. You know, if you don't skin your coyotes, don't put your own fur up. You're kind of, you you have to find one of those. You have to find yeah. a local fur buyer. who's going to take them right away. But by finishing your fur, like I do, you know, it opens up more avenues, more options that I can have in order to get the best value out of my fur. Um, I can sell them to the local fur buyers, just like you're selling the carcass ones. And, you know, typically you get a little bit more because that guy's still going to try to turn, turn around and make a buck, but he doesn't have the processing time or fees into it. So you'll make a little more money on it that way. Um, but it opens up options where you can send them off onto some of these big auctions. You know, there used to be a bunch of them out there. Now there's only a handful of, you know, international fur auctions. Um, the one I've sold to, we sold, sent the fur to this year, um, is fur harvesters auctions are kind of the, the big one right now that's left. Um, there used to be North American fur auctions. Um, they had some, some banking issues over the years where they were lending money out to guys. Uh, maybe they had a little bit of corruption going on. I'm not sure what the whole story was, but they ended up going bankrupt about two, three years ago. And they're no longer a, a player in the, the fur industry, but fur harvesters auction is kind of the, the big main one. Um, I know Colorado does one. They have a Colorado Fur Harvest Association that puts on kind of more of a localized auction. They don't draw on quite as many big buyers. Um, That's in Hugo, I, isn't it? Yeah, I'm not sure where it's at down I there. It's in Hugo. I, th- I think of. I think Dale told me it goes to that one. Maybe it's in Hugo out there at their their county fairgrounds for whatever that county is. I think it's yeah. right there. I think where it, where it's at. But there's there's a few other states. I think Wyoming has one, and North Dakota has one that are kind of similar to that, uh, where they especially areas that have a pretty good coyote. Um, they can market their coyotes in that area, draw on some potential buyers to, to maybe buy more of those coyotes. Now finding a fur buyer to me is the hardest part. I mean, I get lots of questions from guys like, Hey, how do I find a fur buyer? I don't really know. it. There's really not a resource out there that I know of that guys can go and try to find fur buyers. Is there? No, not that I really know of, um, you know, word of mouth, um, you get on any one of these predator post pages on Facebook or any social media Avenue. And, you know, usually the fur buyers are looking for the hunters the same way. So, um, you know, that that's one way you just put a post on there. And usually if there's a local guy around the area who's buying, you know, he'll jump right on or somebody that sold to him will, will post where they're from or where they're getting it from. Um, but there's not really good Avenue just to go search all the buyers around. Well, then it's really determined on the, the fur market itself. I mean, obviously, if the market's really good, there's probably going to be a few more guys willing to buy, travel farther. You know, a lot of these, you know, at least in our area here in Nebraska, Colorado, 
maybe South Dakota, you know, there's a couple big fur buyers that go on routes. So every couple of weeks, you know, they'll have a route that they come through, you know, and they'll be at so-and-so mini mart, you know, from 10 to 1030 on every Tuesday, you know, or whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, but obviously now with, with the coyote prices dropping, you know, they don't want to burn the gas to, you know, go on those routes, which makes it even tougher for these guys to find somebody to, to, you know, take coyotes. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of these fur buyers that go to the local convenience stores or wherever they're, they're buying fur from, and you know, they might put an advertisement on the, the old pegboard or, you know, on the, the cork board there, put a flyer up on a pole or something that tells you it's so stopping your local, local, uh, convenience stores is usually a way to try to find them too, that are coming through the area on those routes. So the reality of the situation is this, if you're shooting coyotes, either try to find a fur buyer. And if you can't, you have to put them up yourself. And if you don't want to do that, you know, if you realize that maybe I just don't have the time, I don't have the resources, maybe the coyotes aren't worth that much. I mean, you know, then we're basically just killing coyotes to kill coyotes, you know, which is not a bad thing. I mean, I, I get a lot of people that think they, you know, you got to go kill coyotes and do something with them. You know, I mean, I mean, let's, let's be honest. There's a lot of parts of this country where coyotes aren't worth anything, even on a good for a year. Right. Right. And you know, they still need shot. They're still fun to shoot. They're still a challenge to shoot. Um, you know, don't feel bad. I guess if you got to go throw some coyotes in an inconspicuous hole somewhere, you know, and feed the worms and feed the birds because you know, it's all part of the process. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's parts of the country that, you know, down South, it doesn't get cold enough. You know, when we talk about a good coyote fur, you know, there's a few things you're looking for, looking for color, you know, paler coyotes typically bring more money than darker or brown coyotes. Um, genetically, if you look at East to West, you know, it seems like West where it's more open country, there's not as much cover, um, whether it's, you know, sage flats, um, out here, the sand hills, Nebraska, we get really pale bleached out looking coyotes, you know, those bring more than a brown, um, you know, coyotes match their, their territory. So Eastern Nebraska, for example, we get more of a brown coyote versus a pale coyote in the Western Nebraska. Um, softness of the coyote seems like a lot of Eastern coyotes. They're not a very soft coyote. They're really coarse. It can be like the difference between, between petting a blue healer versus a, you know, golden retriever, you know, one's really soft. One's got a good coarse hair to it. I noticed yeah. that about those coyotes when down at Rick's in Eastern Kansas, they just have a more of a coarse kind of, Yep. Yeah, they look similar, but they're not, you know, once you yep. start feeling the fur. Yeah, so even that makes a difference. But one of the, the really big ones that you hear about is the heft of the coyote, how much under fur there is. So you're talking about a semi-heavy coyote, which is a really thin, thin-furred coyote, um, which is kind of what we get the majority of ours here in Nebraska. You know, uh, kind of the, the probably the best coyotes around come out of Montana and maybe northwest Wyoming. Um, they get really heavy pale coyotes and those are probably the most desired. Um, and it's not Western. what you mean by that. Let's explain that because a lot of people just look at the guard hair on the back and they think, Oh, wow, he's got four inch guard hairs, which is great. But you're talking about, there's a, there's a layer of solid gray fur, right? That's right underneath it. That really gives it the lushness and fullness. That's yeah, really it, what they're looking for is when you say under fur. And the best way to tell a heavy coyote from a, you know, a semi-heavy coyote is to grab kind of just above the base of the tail, grab that fur. And if you can dig your fingers in really easy and you feel the skin on the underside, it's probably a semi-heavy coyote. If you try to put your hand onto it and it, 
I mean, and it really fluffs up and you got to work your fingers into it to get down to the, the skin. I mean, you got yourself a good heavy coyote and it may not mean much to you when you're, you know, just looking at it on the carcass, but when you put it up and finish it, you, know, you put a heavy coyote next to a semi-heavy coyote and there's a, there's a big difference. Now, another thing to consider too, when we're talking fur is even if you're in an area where the fur is worth money, there's only what, maybe a three and a half, four month window where right. that fur is worth anything. It's like, you can't, even if you lived in Montana, you can't go out and shoot coyotes in June and sell them. Right. You know, I mean, uh, you know, so what are we talking? Maybe, you know, a lot of fur buyers, it seems like, you know, maybe the end of October, first of November, if you're lucky, you know. Yeah. Typically in Nebraska, I mean, I'd say it's the second week in November. Um, they actually would, they call prime. So a guy's going to get his full winter hide and it's going to be the best it's going to be for the full year. He's not going to continually grow hair throughout the year. Once he gets a, a good heavy coat for the year, from that point on, that hair is going to start to degrade. You're going to guard hairs that break off as they walk through the grass and the weeds. Um, as it gets later in the season, they'll start to shed some of that under fur as it gets warmer. You'll see, you know, you, you kind of look at it and see what they call a smoky colored coyote. Where that under fur gets almost a blue color. Yeah, but they call um, them rubs, they right? It. Well, you'll see the, the rub too is where you start seeing losing the guard hairs and losing that under fur on the hips. Usually it starts on the hips is where you start seeing it. And some of that might be either because of, you know, um, they're sleeping on frozen ground as they get up, they lose it. A lot of people say it's during breeding season when you first start seeing that because the, the males are scratching at the females, trying to get them in heat. Um, just different different coyote interactions can cause some of that stuff throughout the year. So really, by maybe by even as early as mid-January, you could have these coyotes really you know losing their value. You can have it even as early as Christmas in some areas, some situations. You know, but not all of them are in the same state. I mean, I've shot some coyotes in March that are still have phenomenal fur on them. Um, and I've shot some really, really good ones in October. You know, you, me, and Brett and the boys went out that one time um, out in the sand hills, and I shot that toad of a coyote that year. That oh, yeah, that was that big 40-pounder, and you yeah. skinned it on a fence post because it was like 80 degrees, and we didn't want yeah, it to Yeah, we didn't want it to spoil. The back of the truck. Yep. And unfortunately, that was one of those ones that when I pulled the trigger, I saw the, the dandelion flying in the air. So <laughs> we spent some time in the first shed on that one, but that was a gorgeous coyote, especially yeah, yeah. for October. So another advantage, because a lot of times the fur buyers, you know, at least I'm, I'm going to refer back to the Dale who I sold, you know, tons of coyotes to over the years. He would shut his doors like February 1st. He'd be like, you know, 50, 60, 70% of the coyotes he's seeing coming in the door rub. So he'd just be like, ah, I'm done for the year. So another yep. advantage to skinning your own coyotes, if you do continue to hunt them through, you know, February into March and you do shoot a few of those good ones, you can put them up and save them, um, you know, and send them, send them off eventually, as opposed to, you know, trying to sell them off to somebody that's not really interested anymore. Yep. Yeah, exactly. One question, one question I have with all these coyotes you've skinned, I talk a lot about the 53 grain Hornady VMAX that I shoot and just how phenomenal they are on coyotes. Um, you know, you shoot them as well. What, what's it look like when you're skinning these coyotes, anything in particular you notice like damage wise or not so much damage wise. When so you're skinning these coyotes with those, with those 53s compared to other bullets and other things that you've, you know, experienced with coyotes you've skinned. Yeah. So I guess first thing with you start talking about bullets, which ones you're going to choose for, for, for friendliness on a coyote. Um, for skinning coyotes, that kind of thing. Um, 
I'd, I'd say more importantly than, you know, the bullet itself is, you know, overall is shot placement being accurate and being able to put that bullet in a good spot makes a big difference. Um, those 53 green VMAX though, um, I've had way less fur damage when you shoot a coyote in a good spot than I have with 98% of the other, other rounds I've used over, over my experience as a coyote hunter. But when um, you peel that coyote and, and you're down to just like the, the skinless coyote, I mean, does it usually just like the carcass looks just totally destroyed? Like just the amount of bruising and nine times out of 10, the impact that that, that 53 does on a, the internal side of a coyote, there is almost zero damage on the outside if it's a good shot placement. But when you peel it back, especially here one in the shoulder, I mean, there is massive, massive trauma on the inside of that coyote that doesn't come back out. It, it absorbs all that energy. And some of the worst trauma I've seen on anything has been off some of those rounds. Yeah, that's crazy. And that's exactly what they designed that thing for, you know. Yeah. penetrate just a little bit and, and 100 percent of the energy is gone by the time the bullet goes you know four or five inches yeah you know, so it, it's get... amazing that there can be almost zero fur damage to that coyote from the outside but the inside is just unbelievable trauma you know a funny little story i'm gonna tell everybody you know you're putting up these coyotes for me the last couple of years and a lot of times i'm all about dispatching a coyote pretty quick and not only sometimes you shoot a running coyote or you know, I have clients or somebody and, and they don't kill it. And I, I end up just shooting it right in the head because of those 53 grains, even from point blank, they don't blow the head like completely off, you know, like yeah. so it just goes in and kind of maybe bugs the eyes out a little bit. And the coyote, well, you didn't tell Until me, you, for, you didn't yeah. tell me for the longest time, but I guess it's kind of a pain <laughs> to skin a coyote when you shoot it in you the head down, like that. Yeah. You get down to the ear part and there's just nothing left of the inside <laughs> of the skull. I mean, it's nice because there's no hole really in it because all that energy is absorbed by the head and it doesn't come out. But man, does it make a mess when you go to skin it? <laughs> you know, I, I told you, I'd tell you this year, it's better off if you walk up to him about, you know, 20 yards away and shoot that thing directly in the shoulder because it doesn't have nearly the trauma and that bullet still doesn't come out with a hole. Well, what I started doing, I actually just started shooting him in the shoulder point blank, honestly. Yeah. You know, it wasn't blown out the other side, but. You know, obviously it must not have been creating too big of a mess for you. I didn't ever no, get any complaints. Yeah. It, it holds <laughs> that, that trauma more in the central body cavity than it does dripping all over the floor. I'll tell you that. <laughs> uh, that's interesting about those 53s. I've always, like I said, I've never really, I've seen piles of those carcass coyotes laying there after you or other guys have gotten unskinning them and you can see the trauma and things. I've always just, you know, when you're hands on with that many coyotes and you, you know, you're a biology kind of guy. So you're always looking at the anatomy of these skin coyotes and kind of seeing what the damage is. It's always interesting to get your perspective on, you know, those bullets and, and, you know, the damage they do do. Yeah. It's, it's pretty impressive when you look at them side by side and comparing what some of those bullets on what they do internally. Now, the last piece I want to talk about is like the global fur market. You know, a lot of people have questions, you know, where's this fur all going when, you know, and why, why do prices fluctuate? You know, obviously we're no experts on this. We're just kind of going off of what we read and, you know, the guys we talk to. Um, but, you know, a few years ago, you know, I've been selling coyotes now for 20 plus years. So I, I've been doing it enough to know and see the ups and downs and in, in the market. You know, I remember times, um, 
you know, it's probably been 15, 20, yeah, 15 years ago, 16 years ago. I mean, coyotes, the best coyote you'd shoot the fur buyer to give you five bucks. And it had to be the best one or he wasn't paying you anything for it. You know, at that time, raccoons were actually worth more on the carcass than coyotes were, you know, but then obviously that market changed. And then, you know, just over the last four or five years, it seems like the market for coyotes has been pretty good. Like probably two years ago was the highest I've ever seen it. Probably 20 years, Um, you know, and, you know, but obviously then now this year, you know, was a huge drop and it's not looking great for last year, you know, explain a little bit how that all works um, well, from what your, you know, your experiences are. Well, first thing you had to understand is that uh, the United States is not a player when it comes to fur, you know, it's an international market. The main buyers when most of the wild fur are countries such as Russia, China, Korea, Italy, um, Canada. I mean, these are places that fur is still fashionable. Um, you know, they used to be fashionable in the United States and then antis, you know, PETA and some of these other anti groups, um, back in the, the early eighties kind of really kicked off and that kind of killed a lot of the, the, the fur desire in the United States. Um, as far as I understand. Um, so a lot of what happens on the fur market kind of dictates on what, you know, what's going on in these other, other countries outside of the United States, outside of what we kind of see on a regular basis, you know, things that really might've affected things this year would be, you know, um, COVID for one thing, you know, China was one of the original places. They shut them down. They weren't buying it, taking in any raw goods, you know, the, no Ukraine, Russia war. I mean, that conflict right there took out two big buyers. Um, you know, there's just, just different avenues out there that um, they're just things we don't really see, but that's, those are big influences of what's going on in this, this market. Um, now to put the, let's put this in perspective for people, you know, so you put up, you put up a bunch of coyotes for me last year. And at the end of the season, we went and sold those for a 51, I think it was a $51 average. Now that was to a local fur buyer. You know, we may have gotten more if we just sent them up to the auction, who knows, but it was an easy, you know, way to get some money and, and we didn't have to deal with that. You know, this year we decided, oh, we're going to send them up to the, to the, the fur harvesters auction that you talked about earlier. And we only like 10% of what we sent up there sold. And we ended up with, at least I ended up with mine. I know you sent up a little different batch, but I had like an $11 average for finished coyotes, which yeah. is not I, even worth obviously the time that you put into those. Um, yeah. You know, so that it's the same coyotes. I mean, those coyotes were no different than the coyotes we shot the year before come from the same areas. It's just that's how much the market plays into that pricing. Right. And that's one advantage to sell them to one of these auctions is those are probably the worst grade coyotes we had. And those are the ones they let go on this auction. Um, you know, we sent off quite a few coyotes this time around, and they're still holding on to those coyotes because there's still value to them. You know, they're they're going to make money on those coyotes the same as we're going to try to make money on those coyotes. And even though we only sold, would you sell 10 out of the 60 or something? And yeah. I think I sold 10 out of the 40 that I sent off on my end. And, um, they're, they were all about, mine were about $10 averages or a little bit more. Um, but you did a better sewing our, job on mine. That's why yeah. <laughs> our, well, I had some farm country cows oh. that probably weren't quite as great. Yeah. As I was good. <laughs> but regardless, you know, uh, they're holding back some of the better ones. I think have more value that they didn't get the, 
the buyer interest that time of year on that auction that maybe they say might bring a 20 to $30 average at the next auction. So they'll hold them over and offer them again. Um, so one more advantage to, to skinning them and putting them up is, you know, I'm not holding on to these coyotes and throwing them in the garbage because the fur buyer didn't want them. Um, this year, maybe the market will change next year when they still have those finished coyotes already up there. Um, I mean, but yeah, it, it can fluctuate drastically from year to year. And it kind of works off futures, right? So you have these fur buyers that are out there, you know, all these lower end guys around the country, and they kind of work off this, these future predictions. You know, right. right now, the future predictions aren't great because there's a ton of coyotes from last year that are still sitting at these auctions that didn't sell. So obviously, if that's the case, you have this huge supply, not a lot of demand, price is going to go down. Um, you know, so right now, I think, you know, as far as the upcoming 22, 23 winter, um, you know what? I, I don't think people should be expecting very much, right? I mean, I think you're going to have a hard time finding somebody willing to buy a coyote. You know, they're that's kind of what these, I'm wondering. They're looking at these auction results, the local fur buyers, because that's either one of their avenues to sell there, or they have contracts with a certain furrier that you know maybe wants a puts in a a bid to a local fur buyer that I want a hundred coyotes this year or a thousand coyotes or whatever it is of a certain quality. So go out there and buy me those coyotes. Uh, so unless they can get those types of contracts ahead of time, but a lot of these companies out there, you know, it's, we're in a world recession and you know, some of these countries that are usually selling fur, they're not selling fur right now. So they're still sitting on product from two years ago, you know, pre COVID and they don't need any raw goods right now to, to make up their supply. So they're not needing it to buy. And we have a bunch on hand. You know, I just don't see us having a very good year this year. It'll be a couple of years before it kicks back in if it does. Well, I heard raccoons might be selling more on the carcass than a coyote this year. So yeah, we might, well, uh, those need thinned on, out. So based on that last fur result, I think, uh, it looked like skunks and beavers might've been the way to go. And, you know, you know, the hides weren't worth much, but with nobody trapping, you know, the essence out of a skunk is used for perfume. Um, it's selling for pretty high rates and beaver caster, the caster glands, you know, they make perfume and they make all kinds of stuff out of that. And with nobody out there, you know, harvesting those with the low fur prices, you know, the demand on those aspects of those animals has gone up. Well, break out the e-call, go call you in some raccoons. You could probably, you know, you don't have to burn a whole lot of gas doing that. You can shoot what as many as you want. Yeah. You know, and, uh, heck you might actually make some money doing that this winter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that's all interesting information. It's, it's the fur market's always interesting to me. You know, to me, it's always been a bonus. You know, I've never hunted coyotes to make money, um, selling the furs to me, selling the furs has always been a bonus. And, I've been lucky enough to live in an area where, you know, the coyotes are worth money. Um, so to me, this is just going to be another year. Oh, well, you know, coyotes aren't worth anything this year, but that's great, you know. Um, but I think we'll see some fluctuation in the hunting, you know, with the, with the prices crazy as they were a couple of years ago. You know, I know there was a big push out there that guys went out and bought, maybe spent, you know, some money on thermals and things like that, thinking, hey, if I can just go out and kill you know, 50 or 60 of these coyotes worth, you know, 50 bucks on the carcass, I could pay off my thermal, you know, but now this winter with gas prices higher than they were last winter and coyote prices down, who knows? Yeah. Might be a lot of guys goose hunting or 
you know, sitting at home watching football, I guess. I don't know. Well, I always explain it, you know, coyote hunting compared to like maybe deer hunting. How many guys go out there and archery deer hunt and they sit out, maybe go 10, 15 times a year. And if they're lucky at the end of the season, they harvested one, maybe two deer to put in the freezer. You know, they're, they're bringing a little bit back maybe at the end of the season, but not much. You know, hunting coyotes is one of those things that when the market's good, maybe you make some money. When the market's poor, maybe you cover a little bit of your cost. You know, I know when I'm deer hunting, I don't usually get much, any, any money back out of my deer to, you know, pay for gas or pay for bullets or, yeah. you know, you're just out there doing the same activity. You're enjoying the outdoors and, you know, you get a few more targets to practice on and pull the trigger on than you do deer hunting. Um, you know, God willing, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you get a little bit back out of it by learning, learning how to utilize this, the value in the fur. And that's probably the main reason why I don't go out and hunt personally in the summertime or before October when the fur starts getting, getting worth the value. Um, I'd rather wait and utilize it and see if we get anything back out of it. Well, this year you can, Joe, I'm giving permission to go early because they're not going to be worth anything. Right. <laughs> that's right. Uh, well, when I look at it, we're going to see who probably are the hardcore coyote hunters over the next year or two and who's just in it for the money, I guess, huh? That's right. <laughs> uh, I'd open up some more opportunities for the guys that do want to go out. That's right. That's right. Well, before, before we close this podcast out, you know, I'm going to kind of jump off the road here that we were on to a, a little bit different topic. You're one of the few guys I know that, that has hunted West, you know, South Dakota, Nebraska, but you've also spent quite a few quite a bit of time hunting what I consider Eastern coyotes in Georgia, you know, and this is always an interesting topic to me about East versus West and, and things like that. So I'm just curious to get your take, you know, you've, you've hunted coyotes, both places, you know, are coyotes really different or, or some of the tactics that you've learned out West, do they apply, you know, day hunting coyotes in the East? Fill, fill me in on kind of what your experience is with that. Yeah. So, I, you know, kind of go back to my background a little bit. I started coyote hunting in, in Indiana and I didn't really know but what I was doing, but I took my first permanent job down in, in uh, central, south central Georgia. I mean, you can't get further east and south than that in an area that, you know, coyotes were kind of up and coming at the time. Their population was exploding. They've kind of migrated in, just hadn't really been there forever. And now all of a sudden there's coyotes everywhere. And when I was down there, I met a few guys uh, through pretty much outdoor forums hunting forums that were interested in coyotes. And I was taking the same tactics that I'd learned pretty much firsthand from Indiana and was starting to apply it down there. And I was having some pretty good success. Um, I still never done any night hunting. All my stuff was during the day and I was just kind of utilizing what I've learned. And, and, uh, I was killing several coyotes. Um, I think the first year down there, like I said, it took me till my second year of grad school to kill my first Calton coyote. My first year down in Georgia, I shot 15 of them. Um, and that's daytime hunting in Eastern United States when there wasn't really supposed to be a lot of coyotes down there yet. Um, but the tactics that you're using, uh, you're just trying to go by the natural behavior of those coyotes. They're not going to be like a Western coyote. They don't come out in the wide open during the middle of the day. They're not comfortable with that. There's too many people. There's too much, you know, you can get them once in a while to come across an open field, but it's got to be a pretty small field where they can come across quick and get back to cover. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah. finding those natural, comfortable travel ways, you know, sneaking your way in, being undetected, playing the wind, um, 
the same rules that apply out west apply out east. It's just a little harder to, to put them together sometimes. So then you came back out west for a while, obviously hunted a lot more coyotes, got right. better just through experience of calling in a bunch of coyotes. Then you actually took a trip back down to Georgia and you know, then you kind of had to listen to these guys say, Oh, come on, Joe, you ain't going to go out there and waste your time during the day. Are you? Yeah. So, you know, when I first got down to Georgia there, you know, I was having some luck during the day hunting. I got to know some of these guys online. They introduced me into night hunting. You know, back then we didn't have the money for thermals or night vision right away. And we were running off flashlights and you know, sure, you see a lot more critters at night. They're more comfortable coming across those fields when nobody else is out there looking at them. Um, we had luck, and my buddies that still live down in that area, they've gotten into the thermal game and the night vision game. And I still think the best way, in my personal opinion, um, for night hunting is to use a thermal hand scanner to spot it and use a good quality night vision identify your target and shoot it i i just have you know maybe i haven't been around the, the really good quality thermals quite yet but um that combination was pretty deadly down there for being able to identify where you're shooting at and knowing it's a coyote and not the neighbor's dog or uh, oh, yeah. a deer or something like that coming in you're you know under 300 yards it was pretty amazing the clarity on some of those night vision um but after coming back out west you know, learning some of the tactics out here and what works. And, you know, I made a trip down there about two, three years ago now. And we went out and did a night hunt. And, um, you know, it was a pretty successful night hunt. We ended up getting into a couple of pigs early. And then uh, I think we ended up harvesting two bobcats, four gray fox, and three coyotes that night. I mean, pretty good action all night long. Oh, yeah. But I had another buddy that comes out and hunts ducks with me every year. And he invited me to go do some day hunting with him. I said, well, everybody tells me you can't kill an eastern coyote during daylight down there, but let's go give it a whirl. He had places where he knew coyotes were hanging out and landowners heard them. And, you know, same, same game we have out west. You got to be where the coyotes are in order to get them killed. And we went out and I think the first stand in the morning, um, we didn't know exactly what the lay of the land was. We snuck in in the dark. And I wish we would have known that there was wide open pines. We tried setting up on this little access trail coming in and it was just too thick of an edge on it. If we would have sat up just 10 more yards off the edge of the trail and open pines, we had two coyotes that came in two, three times. They'd run away. They'd come back in. They just won't come onto that open trail. Oh, jeez! And we never did get one of those two. Um, Next stand we went to, we were on this old, this uh, fish farm of all places. And uh, I kind of set up on this old creek bottom. It was fairly open. You could see 80 yards maybe, but that would be like the natural travel way they'd want to travel going through that area. And uh, we started off just like we would out here with a couple long owls. And for that time of year, no answer, kind of let it rest a little bit. Went into a little bit of prey distress and instantly had a pair of coyotes at 30 yards come run right down that hardwood broad daylight we got one of them before the other one darted back off in the thick stuff but i mean it's the same tactics we use out west that work there but you got to be in those comfort zones you can't get them to come across an open field um 
but overall we made several stands that day and i think we ended up during the day killing three coyotes and probably should have had four or five that's a that's a dang good day even out here you know yeah but it ain't always 10 coyote days you know so that was right between but yeah three four coyote day that's impressive when you told me that story a couple of years ago i was like wow you know that's i obviously don't travel back east i you know too many other places to go i just haven't had a chance to go there but uh you know I, I tell people that, you know, I go off your stories and other guys' stuff, but man, it's doable. You don't always have to have thermal to go kill them in the East, you know? Right. And it was exciting. I mean, you could have done, killed everything we shot with a shotgun pretty much. They were all under, under 50 yard shots when they came in, but you'd hear them before you see them. You just had yeah, to get yeah. yourself just enough, you know, visibility, be able to get yourself in position and be ready for it. Um, the craziest thing was watching one come run down this, this creek bottom you saw a flash here and there and he stopped about 80 yards and started howling at us. <laughs> and if you've been in the woods and heard a coyote howl, you know, it's hard to tell what direction they are, but until they're 80 yards in front of you howling right in your face, it's pretty amazing. That's good stuff, man. Well, hopefully somebody can listen to that and, and uh, maybe think it's not completely impossible to go kill them back East without dropping six grand on a thermal, you know? Right. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, the rules still apply. They're just maybe a little more challenging to make all the rules set up to be successful. You bet. The more you understand the process, the more successful you're going to be. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> well, man, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, if people want to follow along, I know you're on Instagram. What's your uh, What's your handle on Instagram? It's just my name, just Joe Rydell on for on, on Instagram. I'm not sure exactly what how that social media. No, it's, yeah, it's help. just at at Joe R y-d-e-l-l yeah follow along joe he always posts lots of cool stuff with his fishing stuff and then all of his hunting adventures and trapping adventures throughout the winter so um but uh, but nonetheless man looking forward to getting out with you and parker this winter getting some coyotes killed it's only uh what month away two months away maybe we'll get yeah, out of this heat and, and we'll be able start, to get after starting it starting to get the itch but it might be the sweat at the moment <laughs> once again man appreciate you coming on um also want to thank you guys for listening to this. If you happen to listen on Spotify, um, would love for you to give me a five-star review on this thing. You know, all the sponsors and things that make this possible, they look at that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, it is important. And if you're enjoying what you're listening to, uh, you know, click out of this and uh, give us a five-star review. Man, we'd sure appreciate it. But obviously, this isn't possible without the sponsors. Lucky Duck Predator Calls, Hornady, Onyx Hunt, Black Rifle Coffee Company, Cryptech, Six Hour Optics, Swagger Bipods, and of course, the Eastman's crew. Be sure and head over to their website to find out everything they're doing on the big game side. But uh, until next time, appreciate you guys listening. We'll catch you right here on the Eastman's Predator Pros podcast. <laughs>